Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. Christy has a listener request. I do. It has been a hot minute since we did a listener request. So I figured today would be a great day to bring you, our listeners, a case that you asked for. These are always my favorite. They are pretty awesome. It's a great way for us to learn about cases we haven't heard before. That is exactly what happened with this case. I had not heard about it before. You know my favorite part about listening to you tell me a story? is all your hand motions that nobody else will ever see. They're just for me. It's true. I talk with my hands a lot. <laughs> but I don't even realize that I'm doing it till I accidentally like hit the mic or I hit the table. Or... So funny. She's man of whiting it over here, people. I'm very animated. I am an expressive person. It's true. My facial expressions, all of that. If you hadn't picked that up from any of our episodes. <laughs> I'm going to flip this table. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. And this is me holding back. So. <laughs> this, is, this is you trying to be censored. It is. So if we eventually get to live shows, beware, listeners. <laughs> Which is hilarious because I have to censor myself and be like, but, you know, it could have went down this way. <laughs> and I'm like, here's a dirt bag. <laughs> Throw them in the slammer. <laughs> That's why we make a great team. We balance each other out. The listener who requested this case today is so great at interacting with us on our social media pages, and will even send us a true crime meme from time to time. I am sure by our posts you can gather how much we love those. This case was requested back in April, and we are finally now going to cover it. Melissa and I do appreciate each one of you who send in case suggestions, even if we don't end up doing an episode on it. We look into each one and see if we can muster up enough information to share it with you all. At the risk of sounding gushy, I also want to say that we really appreciate you interacting with us on Facebook and Instagram. You get to know us a little bit by listening to us each week, and social media is a way for us to get to know you a little bit as well. For this week, we want to give a big shout out to Pauline for her case request. We have so many great listeners, and we appreciate every one of you. It is so much fun when we get to hear from listeners on a repeat basis. You really do feel like you get to know them. So keep them coming. Today's dirtbag is a serial killer from Colorado, but surprisingly, he is not talked about very often. He is definitely a lesser-known killer, despite being so terrible. As I had mentioned, I actually hadn't heard about him until Pauline suggested this case. What I think Melissa will find interesting about this case is that it is a great example of how the development of DNA technology has grown to help solve cases that would have otherwise been left unsolved. <gasps> You're going to my inner nerd today? I am. You're welcome. (laughs) Melissa loves a confession case, but when you don't get that, sometimes the DNA evidence confesses for the dirtbag. Which is so awesome. It really is. I love the finality of it. You're going to like this case then. And because of this whole DNA thing, it makes it even more shocking to me that it wasn't more talked about. I find it shocking every time we come across a serial killer that isn't talked about. It's true. But we're talking about this particular dirtbag today. On April 19th, 1954, a dirtbag was born in Denver, Colorado. 
He was named Vincent Darrell Groves by his postman father and his school teacher mother. Vincent's parents provided him and his two younger brothers a really good life. The family lived in a yellow brick ranch house in a suburb of Wheat Ridge, which I believe is immediately west of Denver. Their house was on a corner that overlooked many other ranch-style homes and beautiful mature trees. I looked at pictures of this area, and it looks like a stunning landscape to live near. Wheat Ridge was considered to be upper middle class. People were not going hungry in this neighborhood. His family were involved with the Baptist Church. His father was a deacon, and his mom played the organ for their congregation. Vincent was not abused and was given every opportunity to succeed in life, and he almost did. This case might be a cautionary tale about the importance of how you spend your time and who you choose to surround yourself with. It may make you consider how the people you hang around with can shape your path in life. What kind of friends did he have that are going to make him become a dirtbag? Well, you're going to find out pretty quick, but I do feel like if he didn't hang out in the areas that he did, maybe he wouldn't have become a dirtbag. Hmm. You can tell me what you think when we get to it. Vincent was a student at Wheat Ridge High School. He was described as being athletically built and quite tall. He was well over six feet, making him the perfect physique to play basketball. And a fun fact, Dave Logan, who later became an American football player, I think a wide receiver, radio personality and coach, went to school with Vincent. Both being athletes, it is possible that they might have run in the same circle of friends. This means nothing to me because I don't follow football, but I thought maybe some of our listeners might find that interesting. (laughs) Vincent was the school's top player on the basketball team. In 1972, they made it to the finals of the state championship, and Vincent was coined the team's MVP. Needless to say, Vincent was super popular. He was even a prom king finalist. He was also on the student council. He was living what a lot of kids in high school can only dream about. Tall, muscular, top athlete with lots of friends. He did not have to go to school and worry about being bullied or worry how he was going to make it through the day. In 1972, Vincent graduated from high school. It was noted that he was the only black person in his class. Immediately after graduating, Vincent enrolled at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. There, he was able to continue to play ball while studying. Did he have it all going on academically too? He did. He'd gotten into college. He was doing really well. He was even on the student council. Sounds like he's got a pretty good start going. He did. And when I got to this point in my research, I was thinking... How did this all go so wrong? Vincent had every opportunity to build a great life for himself. He came from a good home. He went to a good school. The world was really his oyster. What he decides to ultimately do with his life cannot be blamed on anyone but himself. Often with serial killers, we see common traits of things like child abuse and maybe head traumas to help us understand how a person becomes a dirtbag, not to excuse it, but to help us see how it could happen. With Vincent, he had to actively choose to be a dirtbag, which I find extra terrifying. And fascinating. Yeah. How does somebody make that choice if you've got all your faculties and everything going for you? Yeah, that's what I mean. It is extra scary for me. When we can't really explain how this happened, this is a normal guy who is living a really good life. Well, what it makes it seem like is that he had an absolute choice to do it and he chose to do it. It wasn't like he was compelled or he didn't have the skills or the coping to not choose to do it. Or the family support, friends. He was having all those needs met. Or so it would appear on the outside. That is really scary. 
Within the first two years of college, Vincent lost interest. He started skipping classes and ball practices. This behavior continued until he decided to just drop out completely in 1974. Did he get involved in drugs? He will. But not at this point? Not really. I don't know if he was getting bored and just was like, I don't really feel like going to class. I don't really want to go to practice. And he was just like, this college life is just really not for me. Seems like a big switch from his previous personality. It does. But things don't immediately turn sour. He left Iowa and headed back to Denver, where he began living with his grandmother. People said that he helped to take care of her. And that's why he chose to live with her. She needed some help. And he's like, oh, I'll stay with grandma and help her out. Vincent didn't want to be just a freeloader, so he got a job as an electrician at Gates Rubber Company. It was said that he stayed close to his parents. There was no pressing family conflict, and they got together often. So even after leaving college, he's still doing okay. At first. None of this is making sense, Christy. It really doesn't, which makes this case so fascinating. Because I found lots of background information, but nothing that could explain how things go so wrong. I'm not sure what he felt that he was lacking in his life, or if he even did. What we do know is that before long, Vincent started to enjoy the party lifestyle as a 20-year-old guy. At first, he would go drinking and frequent the red light districts in his area when he had free time and wasn't working. He liked to drink at a lounge in Denver called The New Yorker. Eventually, his friends became concerned about how much and how often he was drinking. So this is where we start to see some substance abuse. Before long, he was going as much as he could and was starting to hang out with sex workers and their pimps. He began to get wrapped up in this lifestyle, and crime seemed to be a natural progression for him. So it's not even like it was his friends from school. It's just all of a sudden he's just immersing himself in this red-like district culture, for lack of a better word. Was he floundering in life and just not knowing what to do next and just found himself wrapped up in this culture? I actually feel like I would have liked to have known what his IQ was. Because I'm wondering if he just was getting bored with life. Mm. You know how sometimes when kids are too smart for their own good, and I'm not saying that he was, I have no idea what his IQ was, but that's the only thing that my brain can kind of compute to maybe he was just getting bored and then quits college, gets this job as an electrician, but it's still not filling that void. And so he's going to this nightlife that is exciting and brand new and different from anything he's ever seen. And that's why he was seeking out stimulants? Maybe. Hmm. Just a thought. I have no idea. Right. It just seems like such a big switch from his early life. It absolutely is. It feels like it's a 180 turn in life for him. I can only imagine how shocked those who knew him in school would be to later learn that he became a serial killer for the span of a decade, 1978 to 1988. It is actually believed to be the longest-running serial killing spree for the Denver area. Again, how do we not know about this guy? Listeners, I'm actually really curious if any of you have already heard about this case. Good find, Pauline. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take a big leap here now. Vincent must have thought it was so cool to be a pimp, because at the end of 1977, at the age of 23, he decided he wanted to be one. He preyed on a young girl of only 17 years. Jeanette Baca. He somehow convinced her to work for him. This makes my stomach turn. She was a child and he wanted to profit off her body. It is interesting, though, that you brought up that question about his IQ because here you see he's manipulating someone else and has the ability to do that, which would suggest a higher IQ. Exactly. And I do mention this later on, but the police actually comment about how he was able to coax and manipulate. I'm not sure if this girl was already on the streets 
or if Vincent had a relationship of some sort with her prior and talked her into working for him. I also don't know if he had other people working for him as well. I did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole in studies regarding the relationship between a pimp and the sex workers they have working for them, because I kind of wanted to understand how does this happen. I'm actually so glad you did, because I need to understand that more. How does somebody allow somebody else to collect income from them doing work? Well, I think it's the promise of, oh, I'll protect you. You know, you're not on your own. Mm. This rabbit hole was heartbreaking, and I don't have time to share everything that I learned. But what I did learn was that some women do become sex workers because that is what they want to do. But this seems to be a rare occurrence. Conditions that lead young women down this path are typically not good ones. It's more of a desperation thing most times, right? It is. And I read that some girls have reportedly started sex work as young as age 10. What? Mm -hmm. That is heartbreaking. They feel at that age that there's no other help or options available for them. Right. What has happened in their first 10 years of their life to have them in that situation? There was a study conducted in 1994 that found that 85% of sex workers are raped by their pimps. This statistic was cited in 2016, so I don't believe it has been updated since then. I feel like so much more research can go into studies like these. That being said, the study I found on womanslaw.org was conducted well after this case took place, so I feel like the numbers were likely relevant when Vincent wanted to become a pimp. I am hoping people involved in sex work today have more opportunities to safeguard themselves. All this being said, the reason I wanted to point out this heartbreaking statistic is because many believe that Vincent was not kind to Jeanette. I assume he was treating her like his property. Less than a year after getting mixed up with Vincent, Jeanette's dead body was found on June 11, 1978, in a wooded area of Jefferson County. Police suspected Vincent of her death and brought him in for questioning. Jefferson County Sheriff Lieutenant Dennis Potter later said about the police during this time, quote, One of the things that got them on Vincent Groves was they interviewed him for three or four hours and caught him in, they said, hundreds of lies. Oh, so he can't be that smart. Or maybe he just thinks he's the smartest one in the room. Could be. They also interviewed Vincent's cousin, who didn't say outright that his cousin killed Jeanette. But it was reported that he did unknowingly corroborate information that only the killer would have known about the case. For example, he said that Vincent came home that night with black charcoal soot all over his clothes. What the public didn't know is that the killer had burned Jeanette's clothing in a picnic area to try and hide evidence. Okay, so this is murder number one, and why does it go on to murder number two? Oh, it goes on to murder a lot. Lieutenant Potter said, quote, Put those things together with his lies, and though we can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're confident he's the one who did it. We have no information or evidence to lead us elsewhere. But sadly, police could not gather any concrete evidence against him, and he was never charged with her murder. He was set free to evolve into a serial killer. That must be one of the most frustrating things for police officers to know, yes, we know he did it, but not to have physical evidence enough to have him prosecuted. I cannot imagine how frustrating that would be. Like, this is our guy, but we have to just let him go. Oh, I actually found Jeanette's case profile on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation website, and it saddened me to see how little information is listed about her. Her case status has remained open and will likely never be proven. That is so sad. Not long after Jeanette's body was found, Vincent met a 21-year-old woman named Norma Jean Halford. She was from San Jose, California. I assume they became romantically involved because they quickly began living together. 
so I guess at this point he had moved out of Grandma's house. On August 24, 1979, a soldier from the American Army came across an abandoned vehicle on the side of a mountain road just outside of Georgetown. He reported the car, and it was traced back to belonging to Norma. Norma was never seen again. Her body was never found, and no one ever heard from her. It is highly believed that Vincent murdered both her and Jeanette. It does sound very suspicious. Mm-hmm. By the end of this year, 1979, Vincent's drug use went from recreational to a full-on addiction. By this time, he was living in a house in Denver and started selling cocaine, heroin, and marijuana. It sounded like this house was the place to go to play poker and snort lines of coke. He's running his own crack house. Yes. So once drugs are involved, then you don't know what kind of personality you're getting. Yeah, it makes him that much more volatile for sure. But it could also explain how he takes a great big huge leap from what he was growing up to the dirtbag he becomes. Right. He's definitely already become a dirtbag at this point. But I think, like you said, bringing in these drugs, it's just going to exasperate the situation. He's mm-hmm. going to get that much more dangerous, which we will see, unfortunately. Around this same time, Vincent began dating a woman named Janet Hill. They stayed together for a couple of years, living in a second-floor apartment on Pearl Street in Denver. Despite Vincent disappearing for days at a time, the couple became engaged. In hindsight, I bet he was terrorizing women during these days when he didn't come home. A few days before their wedding, on March 23, 1981, someone who Vincent had gotten messed up with broke into their home and left a gun sitting on the windowsill as a threat. The couple immediately packed up and moved in with his parents for a short time. The two were married in March of 1981, a month before Vincent's 27th birthday. It was said that Vincent spent their wedding night getting high while Janet slept. Oh, that sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Not how most people want to spend their wedding night. No. <laughs> and that's all we'll say about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as his drug addiction grew, Vincent was described as being volatile. He was becoming unpredictable and not in a good way. Vincent quit his stable job at Gates Rubber Company to work as a janitor. As a janitor, his hours were not steady, and this became a source of contention between him and his new wife. A shortage of work hours would bring a shortage of pay, which, as any adult knows, a shortage of funds greatly increases the stress in your life. Absolutely it does. But right after I wrote this, I thought to myself, you know what else would be stressful? Being married to a dirtbag like Vincent. That's true, too. (laughs) And I'm sure it was pretty stressful for him trying to cover up all of his crimes. Not that we feel for him at all. (laughs) (laughs) Stop laughing at me. But it would lead to him doing more dirtbaggery. It's true. No, you (laughs) redeemed yourself there. I totally agree. That was my thought process. But sometimes it comes out as poor Vincent. (laughs) Really, what it is, is I can understand the breakdown that might have happened there. Oh, absolutely. For sure. On August 14th, 1981, so just five months after being married, Vincent went on a camping slash fishing trip and would use this opportunity to strike again. Vincent's victim was a 17-year-old girl named Tammy Sue Woodrum. She was his friend's daughter. Was he still pimping at this time secretly too? I didn't hear any more about pimping after that kind of beginning part, but he could have been. He was selling drugs. He seems to be attracted to teenage girls. Yes. Most of his victims are younger girls. Later teens, early 20s. He had the niche to manipulate them. Right. But this was his friend's daughter, which to me just makes it so much worse. That is awful. Because there's that level of trust that is now being broken. 
Right. And he goes on to murder for quite some time. So he wasn't caught right away. So can you imagine him consoling his friend afterwards? Yeah. I'm envisioning him still having a relationship with that friend after this child's death. Mm, I don't know how long that actually lasted. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'll explain it all right now. Vincent had planned a camping trip to do some fishing with these two friends and their daughter, Tammy. He had been fighting with his wife because she wanted to come along too. Vincent told her that she was not allowed to come with him and took off in their camper truck, leaving his wife alone for the night. (gasps) What a dirtbag! Yeah, this to me shouts premeditation. He didn't want his wife there so that he could do what he wanted to do. But his other friends are there. Yeah, and their daughter, but I feel like he knew right from the beginning what he wanted to do to Tammy. The next day, he returned home, and Janet was at their house. She had called into work sick. Vincent told her to get inside the truck. He drove her out of town and broke down crying. He told his wife that on the way to the camping trip, he stopped and picked up Tammy. He said that the two of them went to Boulder to purchase cocaine. He said he then drove towards Fraser, which was about 90 miles away, and then pulled off onto the side of the road. Vincent claimed that Tammy got out of control shooting up cocaine and had died from an overdose. When Janet asked him where the young girl was, he told her she was inside the camper. It was one of those camper things that attached to the bed of a truck. So he's like, she's here. She's in the truck. Where are her parents that he was supposed to be camping with? I don't know. I couldn't find any reports that talked about the parents. I'm assuming the parents thought they just didn't show up. Okay. And they're hanging out with a known drug addict, and so maybe there's some history there too. Could be. Okay. After this quote-unquote confession, Vincent's wife Janet convinced him to go to the police and tell them what had happened. And surprisingly, Vincent listened to Janet and went to the police to tell them about Tammy's death. One report said he brought her body to the police station in his camper. Okay, how can he murder any more people after this? That is the million-dollar question. He should not have been able to after this. It is not clear if Janet knew that her husband killed this young girl or if she believed it was accidental and just wanted him to do the right thing. Either way, good for her for convincing him to turn himself in. Thankfully, an autopsy was performed on Tammy, the results of which did not corroborate Vincent's overdose story. Tammy had zero traces of drugs in her system when she died. She did not overdose, like he said. It was clear she had been murdered. She had been brutally beaten, raped, and then strangled to death. Marks on her body matched markings on Vincent's belt. Reading this stirred up that deep-down anger for me. What a dirtbag. Knowing that he had whipped her basically with his belt. I am still trying to figure out how he goes on to murder other people. This seems like a slam dunk. Uh, You're in jail, buddy, now. Yeah, it should have been. Police charged Vincent with second-degree murder, and a year later, in the summer of 1982, he was found guilty of the charge and sentenced to 12 years behind bars. Janet did what most women hopefully would do in this situation and divorced her disgusting husband. Apparently, she visited him in jail, wanting to hear from his own lips what he had done, but he refused to admit to what he did. While incarcerated, Vincent finished his college courses and participated in multiple sex offender rehabilitation programs. It's sad, but those programs do not have a great success rate, especially ones from the 70s. I was just going to say, and who knows all these years ago, how good they were. So was he high when he did this? Well, I'm assuming that he was. He seemed to have a full-on drug addiction at this point. Why only second-degree murder? 
in my mind, it's premeditated. He didn't want his wife to come. He picked up Tammy without her parents. I think he planned this. I don't know that they could prove that he had planned it. And when you say, how can he go on to continue to murder more people? This is how. Despite being sentenced to 12 years, Vincent was released from prison on parole only five and a half years after taking the life of a child. No way. On February 13th, 1987, he again was set free to carry on murdering more women. But this isn't even his first run-in with the law about murder. No, it's his first conviction. 12 years isn't even enough for what he did to Tammy. And then to let him out after five and a half years, basically all he got to do was finish his college courses in there. And then he's like, okay, I'm good to go. That is crazy. Yeah. It's so frustrating when we see a killer be released early, not even serving half of his sentence when authorities knew he was capable of rape and murder. I've said it before, but if you are on a parole board and you would not feel comfortable leaving your wife, sister, child, or any other person you care about alone in a room for the night with the person you are granting parole, perhaps they should not be let out. Perhaps their second chance does not mean more than another person's life. I'm not saying I don't believe in rehabilitation, just that we see this happen way too often. And it infuriates me. It is just so sad. Yeah, because, oh, we'll give him a second chance. He went through all this rehabilitation. Five and a half years is good. So you're saying his second chance is worth more than all these other women that he's going to go on to continue killing. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, Christy. It's ludicrous to me. It puts it in perspective. Right. And I don't believe that any one of those people on the parole board would feel comfortable leaving their loved one with him for a night. No, not at all. And were the police's suspicions about Jeanette's murder? Were they entered into his parole hearing or his court hearing at all? No, I don't believe so. Not in this trial. Because you can't bring up prior offenses. He wasn't even officially charged with that murder. He was only interrogated. But they knew he did it. They did. Yeah, it's very frustrating. We're going to see that later come in where they will talk about some of the prior offenses, prior offenses that weren't proven. They finally are like, oh, hey, maybe we should do this. But I don't believe it happened in this trial or this parole hearing. And I know there's probably a legal reason why they can't do that. But I just don't understand the legal system enough to understand why previous suspicions can't be entered in. Right. I'm sure there's a good reason. But... This case does not show that reason. No, this case should be studied as to why we need certain protocol in place, in my opinion. It just doesn't seem right. I don't understand the legalese of it. No, especially like back in the 70s. I don't know. And I'm sure things have changed a little bit, but I can on one hand see how if you've not even been charged of a murder, you can't just like throw that up. Right. But when we know that he's done these things, it's so frustrating. But at the time, they couldn't prove it, and so you can't bring it up. Right. But his next trial, they do. They bring in some of these cases that weren't proven. What was he doing in prison that convinced them? He got his college degree. He did all those rehabilitation programs. He's doing great. He got a free education. What else are you going to do in jail other than do those things? It's not like you've got other options. Well, he could be attacking other prisoners. He could be <laughs> dealing drugs. He could, I'm sure there's some rotten things he could be doing in jail. It's not all kumbaya, Melissa. <laughs> you got loads of time on your hand. Why wouldn't you sit and learn? I know it may feel like it, but it's not a retreat. <laughs> or at least it shouldn't be. <laughs> However, it would only take a mere month after his parole release for Vincent to attempt to take another life. Upon his release, Vincent moved back in with his parents in Denver. And a little side note, this would be hard as a parent. I cannot fathom how they felt 
where does your loyalty end? Would you want your rapist murdering adult loser son living with you? I don't know. It's still your child. I know. I don't know. I cannot say at all because hopefully I'll never have to be put in that situation. And I don't think you know until you are. Well, you don't have any sons, so you won't be. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That would be so hard as a parent. Yeah, you have two sons. How would you feel? Yeah, I don't know. Most of us just can't even fathom it, and for good reason. Vincent's parents did their best to support their son. I assume they were hopeful he had changed. Vincent's father helped him purchase a 1978 blue AMC Concorde and get two different janitorial jobs, one at a local church and the other at a department store. However, almost immediately, Vincent started spending his free time in the Red Light District, an area on Colfax Avenue that was known for sex work and drug deals. It was said that because Vincent was driving a brand new car, it put many sex workers' minds at ease when he would pull up to them. Why would that be? My guess would be it's not this ratty old car like, oh, this guy's got it together. He's got money. He's doing fine. He's got a reputation to uphold, so he's not going to be a dirtbag. Maybe. Just that false sense of security. Right. It's a bad stereotype to have, but I'm assuming it's the same how you might be walking down an alley and if one person looks like they haven't showered in a week and look a little, you know, unkept compared to a guy dressed in a really nice suit, how you would have that false security of, oh, I'd rather walk down the street with this clean cut guy than the guy who looks like maybe he'd grab me. Right. It shouldn't be that way, but that is a stereotype that exists. Dirtbags come in all sizes. Yep. Smelly or not. (laughs) That's right. That's one thing we've learned while doing this is that anybody can kill you. Yeah. Sadly. Vincent surveyed the area until one night he happened upon 20-year-old Sheila Washington. She was a sex worker on Colfax Avenue and agreed to be hired by Vincent. He offered to pay her $200, 10 $20 bills that he said he had just won at the dog track. Today, that is over 540 U.S. dollars and almost 730 Canadian. On the way to the motel, Vincent stopped and bought $100 worth of crack cocaine, again, which is $270 U.S. and $365 worth Canadian today. Where is he getting all this money from? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it wasn't from his janitorial jobs. No, and he just got out of prison, so it's not like he had it saved up. And he's got quite a hefty addiction, so I'm sure he's spending all of his money on blow. Probably, but he said he had won the money at the dog track. Okay. So I guess we're adding some gambling in there, too. Inside room number eight at the El Patio Motel on Colfax, they first got high together and then Vincent quickly became physically violent with her. Sheila didn't see this violence coming. She said she started to take off her clothing while he sat on the bed watching. Vincent told her to leave on her bra and underwear so he could take it off himself. When she stopped to take a hit from the crack pipe, Vincent told her he wanted to show her how he got high in college. I question if this quote-unquote high, had anything to do with drugs at all, or if he was cleverly referring to the high he got from hurting women. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's where my mind went. Because I don't think he had a big drug problem in college. Or at least it wasn't known about, maybe? Maybe. It was just a creepy thing to say. But that would explain his change in behavior and all of a sudden not wanting to do basketball, not being interested in his classes, if his drug addiction did start back then. Could have been. I think he was more functioning back then with it. Mm Mm-hmm. If he was. Vincent walked over to her and placed the pipe to her mouth. She breathed in, closed her eyes, and held her breath. Vincent was over a foot taller than Sheila. She was only five foot three and a petite frame. While her eyes were still closed, 
Vincent quickly grabbed his hands tightly around her neck. Sheila screamed and fought for her life. As they wrestled, one of her feet hit the glass coffee table in the room, making it shatter all across the floor. Thankfully, a man in the next room, room 10, heard the commotion and intervened, ultimately saving Sheila's life. What a good bystander. Oh, I can't even believe it. Not many would do that. No. And thank goodness she hit that glass table. I think that's what he heard. Sheila said she could feel herself losing consciousness. She felt her body go limp, and then everything went dark. This man from room 10 said that he had to kick the door open. When he did, he saw Vincent, who was half naked, standing over top of Sheila. Vincent quickly grabbed his pants and made a run for it. Unfortunately, Vincent was able to flee the scene before anyone could stop him. It took Sheila a week to gather enough courage to go to the police. She never knew the name of her attacker and could only give police a description of him and his car. However, this was not enough information for police to apparently make the connection that this was the rapist that had barely been paroled. Over a year later, in August of 1988, Sheila spotted Vincent's car. The sight of it must have haunted her because when she saw it, she knew it was him. She immediately reported her finding to the police. What is so mind-blowing to me is that during the same time, police were actively investigating Vincent in connection with over 20 murders in the Denver area. No way. Yes. For many of these cases, he had been reported as the last person the victims were seen alive with. All were women or girls who had been strangled. Police knew that he frequented Colfax Avenue and was frequently hanging around pimps, sex workers, and drug dealers. Wouldn't all of that been a violation of his parole? That's exactly what I have written next. I question how he was not thrown back in the slammer for any number of parole violations. And they knew him by name. It wasn't like, oh, this guy that looks like him. No, he was a top suspect in 20 murder investigations that were currently going on. Okay, so I am going to go back to my question about when you suspect that many murders by one person, why can you not put them all together and be like, okay, there has to be something here. If he's a suspect for 20 different murders. Right. How can he be the last person that all these women were seen with and not have murdered them? Yeah. After Sheila identified his vehicle, Vincent, now 34 years old, was finally arrested on September 1st, 1988, near the corner of South Colorado Boulevard and East Mexico Avenue, and hauled in for questioning. She had reported her attack, and then she was able to identify him, and so that's why they're calling him into question, for her attack. For her attack, yes. She had reported the attack a week after it had happened, they couldn't really do much with it, and a year later... She saw his car. I'm assuming she wrote down his license plate and called the police. Okay. And they're like, oh, we know this guy. He's our suspect for 20 other murder cases. So, of course, they're going to go pick him up. Mm -hmm. To no surprise, he denied having anything to do with any murders. It doesn't seem like he takes a lot of responsibility for anything. And so I'm wondering in that charm childhood that he led, was he ever held accountable to anything? I don't know. That is a really good point. Because even getting out for murdering a 17-year-old girl, his parents bought him a car and helped him get a job and were supporting him for a while. Yeah. And so does he just feel like he's invincible and owed everything because he's never been held accountable his whole life? Could be. Everything just kind of came easy to him? Yep. And he never expresses any remorse. He doesn't admit it. He's that kind of dirtbag. Narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Those are the dirtbags to hate. <laughs> they are. Well, and even to be 23 years old, hanging around in these red light districts and being like, oh, I want that. I want to be a pimp. I want to be in control of a girl. I want to make easy money. That takes a special kind of mindset. Yeah, it does. And it kind of builds into that view of, oh, well, I want something so I can have it. Right. I'll take whatever I want. Because it's owed to me. Even if it's my friend's 17-year-old daughter. Ugh. He's disgusting. Because he was a paroled murderer, his bail was set at a million dollars. Today, that is 2.6 million U.S. and over three and a half million Canadian. Needless to say, no one bailed him out, and he was given a public defender. He was held at the Douglas County Jail. So his parents didn't bail him out? I don't think they had $2.6 million to. Oh, so it wasn't a choice that they just couldn't or they wouldn't? That I don't know. Okay. Like that's three and a half million Canadian who has that where they can just bail out their kid. They were upper middle class, not upper class. Gotcha. Police searched his vehicle and home, and despite finding some hairs, they were not able to come up with any concrete evidence against him. They took blood samples from him, his parents, his ex-wife Janet, and other close acquaintances of his. Because they could not find any hard evidence against him, Vincent was only charged with assaulting Sheila. No. Yes. And Vincent retaliated against this charge in the most dirtbaggish way imaginable. He threw her character under the bus. Yep. He decided to sue his victim. That is wild. Vincent, this tall, athletic guy, claimed that he was acting in self-defense against Sheila. Wasn't she unconscious on the bed when the guy came in? Yep. He said that after he had hired her, she stole $1,600 from him, which today is over 4300 U.S. and almost 6000 Canadian. He continued to say that after stealing his money, Sheila tried to assault him physically, so he had to defend himself. To which I say there is a big difference between defending yourself and beating up and almost strangling a woman to death. If the other motel patron did not show up, I am certain he would have killed her. Sheila was a known drug addict and had been charged with possession of cocaine at the time of her assault and had served three years in prison prior for drug charges. Vincent's defense, of course, used this against her. And I just have to say, if you are a defense lawyer and you blame the victim in a case like this, you're a slimeball. I wonder, though, if it was Vincent that came up with that argument all by himself. If he has this higher intelligence and we've seen he can manipulate people. Oh, yeah. And he totally does in this situation. Wow. And even to hear that she got a drug charge for possession of cocaine when she went to the police to tell about her attack. That's just terrible. Mm hmm. Well, we're not going to help you, honey, but here's a drug charge. Sorry, you almost died. Unfortunately, the defense's tactic worked, and on February 16, 1989, Vincent was acquitted of his assault charges against Sheila. It only took the jury 90 minutes to come to this decision. He must have had such a good lawyer. Yeah. And again, because he's acquitted, now this isn't going to go on his record either. Nope. We do not like to hate on police or the legal system or any of that type of thing. But oh man, did they drop the ball with this case. I feel like this case is a prime example of why dirtbags often target sex workers, because they are fully aware that often this type of victim will not be considered as important as perhaps someone else might be. A drug addict and sex worker or not, Sheila deserved justice. Absolutely she did. If this was a judge's wife, would she have been treated the same? I don't think so. No. That being said, this time... Vincent would not be given another free pass to carry on destroying lives. This time, his DNA would bite him in the butt. Police had taken a blood sample from him. 
Vincent's DNA pattern matched DNA found at other crime scenes. Just remember, though, that DNA evidence was just in its infancy at this time. I believe it had only been a thing for about two years at this point. Yeah, I think at this time, what they were looking at was they would shoot the DNA through a really gel-like substance, and then you would see a pattern evolve of ups and downs, and then you overlay it and see, okay, if this matches this one, this matches this, then we have our guy. Exactly. And that's how it was referred to was DNA patterns. And thank goodness that this technology had come about. Because first, Vincent was linked to the murder of a 19-year-old woman named Juanita Lovato, or Becky as her friends called her. She was found dead and naked in a field in a rural area near Strasbourg, east of Denver, on April 29, 1988, just months before his arrest. Second, he was now tied to the murder of Diane Montoya Mancera, a 25-year-old woman who had been found dead in Adams County, which is near the I-25 west of Denver. Her body was discovered on July 25, 1988. Both of these women were working in the sex trade industry at the time of their murders, and both had DNA branding in their underwear that matched patterns in Vincent's DNA structure. These two murder cases would be pioneers in using DNA technology to help solve a murder in Denver. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And what a relief that must have been for the police to be like, okay, we know that he did this. All of these crimes are investigating him for so many. And finally, there's some concrete evidence. I always find it so fascinating how new evidence techniques evolve into actually processing a crime scene. For sure. And I feel like we kind of forget that this had to start somewhere. And so even though they have this DNA evidence, it's not being used or collected or examined the same way that we do today. Right. This is definitely still in the infancy of that. Vincent was put on trial for both Juanita's and Diane's deaths. In 1990, he was found guilty of both. For Juanita, he was found guilty and was given a life sentence. A month later, he was extradited to Adams County for Diane's trial. Diane's autopsy indicated that she had been strangled, sexually assaulted, and had cocaine in her system at the time of her death. A witness testified that they saw Diane getting into a car matching Vincent's on the night of her murder while she was working. Another witness stated that Vincent had bragged to him that he had choked Diane to death after she tried to steal his drugs. A pendant matching one worn by Diane was found inside Vincent's car, but could not be proven that it was hers. That seems like a slam dunk case against him. Mm -hmm. Vincent denied the charges against him, but admitted to picking up sex workers on Colfax Avenue several times a month. He said that if police found any of the women's hairs in his vehicle, it was because he had hired their services. He said he would give the women money and take them to purchase drugs before having sex with them in his car. He was found guilty of second-degree murder for Diane's death and was sentenced to another 20 years behind bars. During Diane's trial, prosecutors presented evidence and testimonies incriminating Vincent in the deaths of eight additional women. So here you go. Here's where those other cases that haven't been solved are coming into the trials. Vincent had a clear M.O., He often targeted sex workers whom he could rape and then strangle. However, at this time, he was not charged with any of the other murders. Not yet. The number of murders that could be connected to Vincent continued to grow. When police looked at the timeline of unsolved female murders in Denver with that type of cause of death, they noticed something very interesting. We know that Vincent murdered for at least a 10-year span, 1978 to 1988, What was interesting was that when authorities looked at the murder victims with similar M.O.s, 
There were zero unsolved murders between 1982 and 1987 while Vincent was incarcerated for his first murder charge. And spoiler alert, they stopped again after he was arrested in 1988. I don't think that's coincidental. And it just rubs in that point. If he were never released, all of those other women would still be alive. Exactly. As I said, most of these women were beaten and strangled to death. Their bodies were strewn about in isolated areas across five counties, from Weld to Douglas, which is over 113 miles or 180 kilometer span. Vincent tried to appeal his convictions. On December 24, 1992, he was denied a rehearing, and on July 6, 1993, he was denied a sociorari, which is to have a higher court review his case. Because of his appeals, I was able to find a court document that gave information that was used regarding the other connected victims against him during his trials. Because he was saying this was unjust, he also argued that because the victims had different racial backgrounds, it disproved a modus operandi. This document protected the victims' names, but I will share with you the summaries of three of the cases they used to establish a pattern with him. So these are the cases that aren't proven, but like we were talking about, should have been used. The first woman was said to be one of Vincent's ex-girlfriends from 1981. He admitted to killing her, but said he had strangled her after having sex because they were high on cocaine. So he was kind of like, oh yeah, it was an accident. And I just have to say that doesn't make it okay, sir. Not that I even believe that it was accidental. The second woman was described as being young. She had survived a sexual assault by Vincent and testified at his trial. She said that she was hitchhiking and he assumed she was a sex worker when he picked her up on East Colfax Avenue. She said she agreed to go and have a drink with him in his vehicle. He drove them to a secluded area by the airport and parked the vehicle. According to testimony, Vincent pulled out a knife and threatened to kill this woman and gag her with his socks. He then proceeded to try and rape her. This woman was able to escape the vehicle and run to a nearby car for help. These people were able to record his license plate number. She reported the assault to the police and identified Vincent as her attacker. Police inspected his car and found open alcohol, women's underwear, two knives, and a piece of electrical cord that had a slip knot tied on one end of it. Vincent again tried to explain away his heinous actions. He said that he did pick up this girl to have sex with her, but denied any of the assault allegations. He was never held responsible for this crime because at the time, the victim did not show up to court so I am glad she got to use her voice and tell her story later in court against this gross man. The third quote-unquote transaction, as the court document worded it, was regarding a homicide in 1988, the same year he was arrested. On the night of her murder, this woman was at a friend's house having drinks. It was said that she became intoxicated and had a fight with her boyfriend. Angry from the fight, she stormed out of the house. Her dead body was found the next morning in Douglas County. She had been strangled to death. Semen was collected off of this woman's underwear and was determined to be Vincent's, with odds against his misidentification being 8.4 billion to 1. There was a car oil stain on the pavement next to where her body was discovered, and it was determined that Vincent's car did have an oil leak during that time, however it could not be matched to his vehicle. No other incriminating evidence was found. Vincent argued that because he was not convicted of these crimes, they shouldn't have been allowed to be used against him in court stating that they hurt his character during his trial. He also argued that the DNA evidence may not have been tested correctly since this technology was so new. The prosecution argued that it established a pattern. Vincent made claims in his appeals that definitely make you roll your eyes. 
Things like they could not prove that he knew these women, even though his semen was collected from a vaginal swab. I won't go into all the details, but I am grateful that he was denied his appeals. This man should never have been on the streets to commit these assaults and murders in the first place. Vincent remained behind bars in Denver, Colorado until his death. Like a true monster, he died on Halloween, October 31, 1996, at the age of 42. He died in the prison hospital due to complications with hepatitis C and liver failure. That's not surprising. On his deathbed, authorities urged him to please finally admit to all of the murders he had committed. The dirtbag refused. He could have given so many families closure, but he chose not to. And he only served eight years in prison before his death. However, this is not the end of Vincent's story. More of his murders would be proven years after his passing. 16 years after his death, and 24 years after his final arrest, Vincent Darrell Groves once again made newspaper headlines. The Denver District Attorney's Office announced in February of 2012 that they had solved four cold cases connecting to Vincent. In 2010, the cold case team was granted federal funding to review 250 cases that remained unsolved between the years of 1970 and 1984. 266 cases were actually reopened, and 600 postmortem kits were sorted through. DNA is amazing. I love it. And it just reiterates how important these cold cases are to reopen. DNA evidence collected from vaginal swabs, blood, and hair samples were able to help prove that Vincent murdered the following women. Emma Jennifer was only 25 years old when she was found raped and strangled to death in her bathtub in March of 1979. She rented an apartment in Cherry Creek on the 100 block of Garfield Street and was employed by Warner Brothers Distribution. When first discovered, police found a radio in the bathtub with her body. It is believed that Vincent threw the radio into the tub as an attempt to make his crime look like Emma had killed herself through electrocution. So this is one of his original ones. It's an early one. Yep. Police found a blue nightgown placed nicely across her bed. The sink was filled with glasses of water and the living room TV was left on. And I always feel like finding signs of life like this must be so eerie for those who are called on scene. I can't imagine inspecting a murder scene with a game show or sitcom playing in the background. That would be eerie. Yeah. The safety chain on Emma's front door was dangling, suggesting she had unlocked it. Police originally suspected her on-again, off-again boyfriend of the crime, but never found any real evidence against him. He went by the name Hook and was a violent drunk who belonged to a motorcycle gang and couldn't keep a steady job. Emma had once told a friend that if anything had happened to her, it would probably be Hook. He failed a polygraph test when interrogated, so you can see how police would have thought this was their guy. Finally, 33 years after her death, her murder was solved. Thank goodness police had collected and preserved DNA evidence from her body and crime scene. Those officers likely had no idea just how important that would later become. This was before DNA technology was really developed and well before there was such a thing as CODIS. It is amazing to me that they had the forethought to collect DNA, even though they didn't even know what it was going to be used for. We have this evidence. We know we needed to collect it. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank goodness. Joyce Ramey was 23 years old when her body was found in an industrial park near East 56th Avenue and Havana Street, which is just east of Stapleton International Airport, on July 4th, 1979. He honestly didn't seem to have a cooling-off period. It seems so many, even in the very beginning. Yes. So it makes you wonder then, how many did he actually do during the whole period of time? 
oh, I think there's more than they even suspect him of. Joyce was suspected to be a sex worker, and Vincent was said to be the last person to be seen with her. Like the others, she was sexually assaulted and strangled to death. She was found with her hands above her head and her legs spread apart, I am sure as a final way to humiliate her. Her body was covered in bruises and abrasions. They were all over her calves, her back, her neck, her hip, and the right side of her bum. The back of her head was soaked in blood. It was evident that Joyce fought desperately for her life. It was noted that a white metal ring with a blue stone was left on her ring finger. Joyce was white, which was not the norm for Vincent's victims, and was one of his arguing points. Serial killers often murder within their own race. Joyce's family were not surprised to learn that Vincent was the man who took their loved one away from them, but they were relieved to finally get confirmation. They had suspected him all along? Mm-hmm. The next murder to be solved was that of a 20-year-old woman named Peggy Cuff. She worked at a bank, or collection agency, in Denver, and was missing after one of her shifts. Her body was found in an alley in the 1500 block of South Ogden Street on November 3, 1979. So again, this is an earlier one. The alley where she was found was just five miles from her work and nine blocks from the University of Denver campus. She, too, was raped and then strangled to death. Her crime scene photos were said to be disturbing. She was found face down on the asphalt, only a few feet from where a bunch of weeds were growing. She was wearing blue corduroy pants that looked like they had almost been completely ripped off her body. The officer who studied her case basically said that it looked like she had been thrown on the ground like garbage. They were all from 1979. What the heck was he doing in 1979? I can't imagine that he didn't do more. He was just out of control. Well, he was out of control to begin with in 1979. And that was only a year after starting murdering. Because 78 was his first one. That we know of. Yeah. And then 79, we already have evidence of the three women that he killed and the one that he attacked. Right. It would make sense that he would feel invincible enough to move on to somebody that he knew. Oh, for sure. By that that time, if he had killed already so many. Yeah. Just think even after you've worked in the same job for 10 years, how much more your confidence grows Mm -hmm. of your ability to do that job. So he probably viewed this the same way. The final cold case to be solved was Pamela or Pam Montgomery. She was believed to be Vincent's last victim before being arrested. Her strangled body was also found in an alley in Denver. She was 35 years old and was a sex worker who worked on Colfax Avenue. A witness later testified during the investigation of her death that they had seen her get into Vincent's car with him on the day she died, but they couldn't be 100% certain. Apparently, Vincent's car was pretty ratty at this point and made a lot of noise. And this witness said it not only looked like his car, but sounded like it too. A second witness said they saw a car matching Vincent's stop in the early morning hours and dump her body into the alley in the 1700 block between Locust and Layden Streets. This witness happened to be up early because he was heading out to participate in a triathlon. As he was putting things in his car that he would need for the day, he said he saw a tall black man get out of a blue car with the headlights turned off and pull what looked like garbage out of his trunk to discard on the ground. It didn't take this witness long to realize that what he thought was trash was actually a body. He immediately ran back into his house to call the police. As he did so, he could hear the car pull away. He also described the same chugging sound coming from the car engine as the first witness had stated. This murder happened on August 14, 1988, around two weeks before Vincent's arrest. This tells me that he had no intention of stopping anytime soon. 
in my opinion, he would have continued to kill women any chance he got until he was either caught or dead. It's just so mind-boggling to me, though, that they all suspect him of it, but nobody's bringing him in. Yeah. It really was a series of unfortunate events with him. Okay, so I just have to understand this. These witnesses are coming forward and they're saying, yes, it was this guy with this kind of car. And he is known to police Mm -hmm. for being this tall. He's known to have this ratty car. He's known to them. And yet they can't bring him in for questioning even. They were never able to get concrete evidence against him. It was all circumstantial. I guess it wasn't until 2012 that they linked their DNAs. Yeah. And that's why I'm so grateful that these cold cases were reopened. It is highly believed that Vincent murdered way more women than was even proven. Well over 20. Even though their homicides have not been proven yet, before we end, I do want to briefly mention the name of some of the other possible victims that we didn't discuss, but that are, like I said, highly believed to be Vincent's. Rhonda Fisher, age 30, found in a culvert in April 1987. Carolyn Buchanan, age 35, found two days before Pamela on August 12, 1988. Faye Johnson, age 22, found on a road on January 30, 1988. Zebra Ann Mason, age 19, an honor student found in her car in September 1987. Juanita Mitchell, age 25, found April 1981 in a motel room. Pamela Morgan, only 17, found June 2, 1981, also in a motel room. Cynthia Boyd, age 19, found in February of 1980. And a Jane Doe, found under a bridge on August 12, 1988. That is a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And that's not even listing them all. What I did learn, too, though, was there was a couple of women who were on his list that the DNA evidence proved someone else had done. That's interesting. Yeah. So there was two for sure that were taken off of his list because they had proven it was someone else. Investigators have not given up hope in trying to prove Vincent murdered these women and link him to any other cold cases that he might have caused. A representative from the Denver police station stated, quote, Part of the problem is that not all of the unsolved homicides may have biological evidence or DNA evidence. So we want to strike a balance when it comes to holding out hope for some families that still have a loved one who is a victim of an unsolved homicide. We would not want to offer false hope to people who are still waiting for answers. But at the same time, what Mr. Groves did was so prolific. He was indeed a serial killer. I feel like this is extra scary when there is little to no explanation as to why someone becomes a murderer, and not just any murderer, possibly Denver's most prolific serial killer. Vincent's own family were said to be caught by surprise and couldn't bring themselves to believe that Vincent had committed these terrible crimes. I'm not surprised by their attitude towards it. It was like it was a double life. It was not the boy they had raised or had known. Really? Was it? I don't don't know know how you have a guy with that big of a drug addiction and you're not picking up on that. Well, at this point, I would think so too. And DNA evidence to prove it. Mm -hmm. Vincent used his size to overpower women. He was said to be intelligent and used his wits to coax women into doing what he wanted them to in order to get them into vulnerable situations. He mainly targeted women who were addicted to drugs or worked in the sex industry. He would violently rape and strangle them and then dump their nude or partially clothed bodies in fields, alleyways, or any other place that he felt he could discard them without a second thought. Officer Yearling, who worked on the cold cases, said, quote, He was opportunistic. If the chance presented itself, he took it. Officer Morrissey, who also worked on the cold cases, said, quote, This man destroyed lives. He destroyed families. We figured that he was killing two women a month. 
He was maybe the most prolific serial killer in the state of Colorado. I believe we'll link him to more. And that is the case of a convicted murderer and rapist who was set free on parole to become an even bigger monster, a man who murdered with momentum, the douche canoe dirtbag, Vincent Groves. It is amazing to me when DNA can solve cold cases from that long ago. Yeah, how wonderful. To bring closure to those families. Yeah, at least to give them some answers, some concrete answers. Mm -hmm. But I am just shocked that he was able to get away with it for that long. And they all knew it was him. Right. All those murders that happened in the 80s shouldn't have even been allowed. He should have went to jail for life after being convicted of Tammy's murder. Mm -hmm. It happens all too often. It really does. So thanks again to Pauline for recommending this case. We hope that you guys will continue to send those in. And we also hope that you'll join us again next week when Melissa has another case. Until then. See ya. Bye. any of that (laughs) point in my research i was thinking (laughs) i choke myself sometimes (laughs) it's me choking on my breath see i hit my (laughs) she's talking with her hands again (laughs) but i feel like i can talk better if i can use my hands it's hard (laughs) and poor vincent i'm not saying poor vincent i am saying that how hard it is to cover up a murder and then he doesn't have money I am saying that his increase of stress load would have decreased his ability to make rational thoughts and choices, thus leading to his more... (laughs) No wonder my anxiety is through the roof. Oh no, it's the podcast. I've broken you. (laughs) I like my way of putting it, Christy. (laughs) Is it so out there in your face? Anybody can be a dirtbag. Anybody can kill you. That's our different personalities coming through. We don't sugarcoat things here on Buried Motives. One of us doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) She needs to learn how to breathe. Vincent's DNA pattern matched DNA. Vincent's DNA. Breathe, Christy. Vincent's DNA matched. Pattern matched. Douche canoe. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. 
he just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have faults. He had the same amount of faults as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.